The scripture reading today is Exodus 2, 1 through 10. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got up a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of our Lord. You may have noticed, maybe you haven't, maybe this is a news flash, but we live in a really shallow culture full of sound bites and infomercials. Have you noticed? Honestly, it seems like there's almost no depth, no real conversations. It's just a world of sound bites. You say, wow, that's a great way to start a sermon, Bob. You got us all encouraged here. As a matter of fact, the soundbite approach to life, it's affected the church. All you have to do is look at the popular Christian literature out there. Five of this, ten of that, 24 or 21 of the other. If you want this, follow these rules and there's the outcome. Frequently, I know I sound like a harsh critic, but preachers pick a topic. After they pick the topic, they find a text that they think matches it. And then they produce a sermon. Hone in on the topic, do it with flair, you'll get a following. As a matter of fact, entire religious empires are built around this this approach, and this mentality. Pardon me if I'm not excited about the new wave, whatever it is. Actually, I'm bored out of my mind. I'm sick and tired of easy answers and quick fix solutions because there are none. And all it does is make me more shallow. I don't really know where that came from, but I feel a lot better after I said it. (laughs) Actually, I do know where it came from. Because I want to invite you to enter into a story. I say I'm tired of fix, quick fixes and easy answers. What I want is is a sacred story. A sacred story that's like a deep well that never runs out of water. A sacred story that's like a gold mine where you work and work and work and then all of a sudden you find a kernel, a nugget of gold, a diamond in the rough. 
Why? Because you've made your commitment to study, to think, to pray, to live, and in that studying, thinking, praying, living world, you hear the voice of God. You may have noticed at ECC we kind of bucked the trend for sound bites. We actually read a whole passage of Scripture out loud and we stand for it in honor of God's Word. Sometimes, actually every communion Sunday, we recite a creed together. We read that Scripture because it's absolutely timeless and an infallible Word from God. We say those creeds not because they're infallible, but they're because they're a part of our narrative. They're a part of our story. They were put together by people of faith, many of whom lost their lives for following the very words they wrote. When we read the Scripture, when we immerse ourselves in the history of the church, when we stay in the story, we find life. When we try to get clever and creative and step outside the narrative We lose our way. You know what would be easy? What would be easy would be to pick stories. Actually, it's what I just did. I picked the story of Miriam and Jochebed, the mother of Moses, and just focus on the one story and make it sort of like a fable and let's see what's in the story and we'll do that. But you know what's also important? Is to remember the trajectory of that story. It's not about two people or three or four. It's a story of God. And it's part of a larger tapestry of the history of God's revelation in the world and what he's doing. So indulge me for a minute, will you? No sound bites. No quick fix. Let's just remember where this story is located. Last week we talked about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and a king of Egypt called Pharaoh. And in that story, what do we highlight? The incredible nature of Abraham's faith? Actually, no, we didn't. For those of you who were here, you probably remember. For those of you who weren't, I never say this. Go back and listen to it. What we highlighted was Abraham's failure and Sarah's failure. And we pointed out that in the narrative, there were really only two righteous people, the so-called pagans, Pharaoh and Hagar, the Egyptian handmaiden. But that's where the story just begins as it relates to this particular story, because Abraham is promised a son, Isaac, which he does not see until he's a hundred some years old. And finally, Isaac is born to Abraham. And Isaac is an interesting child. Yes, indeed, a very interesting child. Some people say, and I think for good reason, he had mommy issues. He seemed too attached. He was certainly manipulated by his wife and the younger son that he bore. Yes, Isaac. Anything but perfect, but part of God's story. Oh, his son, Jacob. There's another one. What a rascal, self-centered, absolutely deceptive swindler. God decided in this story to choose Jacob 
and to make him part of the story. Jacob himself, of course, being a swindler, thought he could connive and create his own way in every fashion and met his own match in his future father-in-law, Laban, who, when he wished to marry the daughter of Laban that he loved, Laban tricked him and gave him the other daughter instead. Man, I'm glad that culture has changed. I couldn't have been tricked, nor could you. But Jacob was tricked, and he gets Leah, and then he works for seven years to earn back the one he really loved, Rachel, and Rachel becomes his wife. And then the saga of two wives. Really? You want to volunteer for that? Not me. But it gets even better, or worse, as the case may be. Because he wants to reproduce children and have something of this promise that was inherited, that he inherited from Isaac and was promised to Abraham, he has at least two handmaidens that he has children with as well. So he's got two wives and two handmaidens. And they have twelve kids all together. And ten of them are not from Rachel and two of them are from Rachel. And he loves those two. And the other ten, you might expect they hate those two. And so on one occasion, the other ten, decide that they're going to kill Joseph. No, not get him away from town, but kill him. One among them has a soft heart, and the plan sort of goes awry, and they sell him into slavery. Joseph finds his way into slavery, and then out of slavery, and then the vice chancellor of this place that is becoming almost repetitive, Egypt. And as that vice regent, he preserves by way of a dream from God interpretation, a way of sparing the nation of Egypt and vicariously sparing his own family from slavery. Because Jacob, by now an old man, has the ten sons back there wondering what happened to Joseph, the lie that they recreated that didn't happen, that a wild beast slaughtered him not knowing all along that they sold him into slavery. And Jacob says, get off your haunches. Stop sitting on your hands. Don't you see we're starving here? Let me insert this phrase. I'm an old man. I can't do anything. You get up and do something. Go to Egypt and find us some grain. And so they do. They go to Egypt to find some grain and they encounter this, well, this really mean-spirited Egyptian who calls them spies and later they find out it's their brother. The one they sold into slavery. And before it's all over, the whole family is gathered in Egypt and celebrating the grace of God. And then Jacob dies. And when he dies, the ten brothers come trembling to Joseph. And they say, please, Jacob's dead. You probably are going to kill us. Don't. He said, you know what? Not only am I not going to kill you, I'm going to give thanks for you. Here's why. Because what you meant for evil, God meant for good. When you sold me into slavery, it was the providence of God in all that wickedness to save you, to save us, as we know it, to save the promise. Joseph has a remarkable attitude about it all. And this story continues. This story, let's rehearse, that included 
two attempted murders that included adultery and incest and prostitution. All before we get to this place, the story of the promise. And now here we are. We're with these people who've been redeemed by the hand of God. Absolute dominant sovereignty in this story. And complete. A story complete and saturated with faith. So here we are. Joseph's gone. And a Pharaoh that doesn't know Joseph, whatever that means, either he didn't know him at all or he forgot him on purpose, is now in charge. And the result is pretty obvious. The people of Israel begin to be persecuted by Pharaoh. Why? Because they're a threat. They're growing large and strong. And he said, they could raise up an army and overthrow us. We have to do something about it. So the first solution, well, it's real easy. Just work them to death. Work them so hard they got no time for recreation. Work them so hard they have no time for military planning. Work them so hard they have no time for babies. Work them hard. And he did. And God made them prosper. Oh, by the way, that's a story about God and Pharaoh. Guess who wins? He comes up with another plan, Pharaoh. If it didn't work to work them harder, then I'll do this. I'll just have the midwives kill every child that comes out of the womb if that child is a son. And so the midwives, don't you love this? They say to Pharaoh, Oh, King Pharaoh, we would love to follow your decree. But I'll tell you what happens. These Hebrew women are so vigorous that by the time we get to the birth site, they've already birthed their children. They don't need us. How are we going to kill a living baby who's already outside the womb? Liars. It's not what happened. But it's what the midwives said. And you know what? The text says God blessed them because of it. I'll leave that one alone. So that's not the final solution, Pharaoh thinks. That didn't work. I'll do it another way. I'll have all small boys who are outside the womb and discovered killed. That doesn't work either. Because God versus Pharaoh means God wins. What happens on one occasion? And I say on one occasion because there had to be numerous other occasions. A mother decided that she wanted to preserve her son. Now you might think to yourself, oh, Moses is the only one that escaped the wrath of Pharaoh. No, not really. Otherwise, he would have had no contemporaries and he had plenty of them when they went into the desert to follow God. There may have been numerous stories like this one. But this one... God chose to use in his story. This story of remarkable, what I call, proactive faith. You know, sometimes we think of faith as a rather, well, passive thing. Let go and let God wait upon the Lord. We use all kinds of phrases, all of them good in some measure, but sometimes they create within us, a disposition, a passivity. I think this is an example of not passive faith, but proactive faith. 
What's it look like? Well, you heard the story. Let's rehearse it again. This mother, who's unnamed in this passage, later we know her as Jochebed, decides that she's going to preserve her child. She says, there's got to be a way to do this. So what I think I'll do is I'll put him in a little boat, a little ark. Some passages or translations of that passage say ark. I think it's kind of interesting because it's the only time the word is used except for the ark with Noah. No matter, I'll put him in a little boat and I'll set him into the river and I'll let him go on the Nile. Now, there's an idea. Yeah, with the crocodiles, the interstate highway of Egypt. It's like saying, I think I'll put him at the interchange of 65 and 75 and see if anybody sees him. I mean, that's the way Jochebed was thinking. I don't know exactly why, but I think I know she had a plan. She put him at the strategic center, the epicenter of, if you will, of activity in Egypt, where everybody came to get their water and everybody came to bathe and everybody expected the flood to bring it up onto the sand to fertilize the soil for the crops. It was a highway and she put him there. And then this judicious, proactive woman of faith decides that that's not enough. She's not just going to release him to the crocodiles and anyone. She places Miriam in the bulrushes. If I'm writing the script for the movie, I've got a beautiful young woman peeking through the reeds, watching her little brother. And while he bobs on the water, the Egyptian daughter of Pharaoh comes to bathe and to get water and she sends her slave girl out to retrieve this basket. Turns out to be Moses, a baby, and she has compassion. She has compassion on a Hebrew child, she says. And basically she says, we're going to save him. Oh, wasn't it her father who said, no, we're going to kill him? And it was she who said, no, we're going to save this one. That's a curious twist in the story. But no matter, here's Miriam peering between the reeds and she pops out at just the right time and says, oh, yes, I see your compassion. I noticed that you were aware of the fact that this is a Hebrew baby. I've got an idea. How about if we get a Hebrew handmaiden to nurse this baby? What a great idea, says Pharaoh's daughter. I'll even pay her. How many of you moms get paid for doing what you're supposed to do, huh? No. This is an incredible plan. And I don't think, for one, that it was a quick-witted teenager who figured this out on the fly. No, I think this is a plan. Well-advanced, proactive faith. Jochebed and Miriam, knowing what they had to do, constructing a plan and waiting for God to come through. That Hebrew child named Moses, named because he was taken from the water, is nursed by his own mother, trained for we don't know exactly how long. And then get this. Released back to Pharaoh? The one who had executed his death sentence? She sent him back. She let him go. You might say she had to. 
Well, maybe. Don't you think she could have run away? Remarkable faith on the part of Jochebed, his mother. You know what is true of both Miriam and Jochebed? They couldn't see the future. They weren't prophets or claiming to be. What they were doing was being faithful. What they were doing was proactive faith. They were saying, this is what I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to trust God for the rest. They couldn't have seen the future. They had no idea who Moses was going to turn out to be. They didn't realize that in the bulrushes, in that little basket, on the Nile, the deliverer of the people of God rested. How could they have known? But in the right moments, they were proactive with their faith. Proactive faith. What does it look like anyway? You know, you hear the debate about divine sovereignty and free will. Is it up to me or is it up to God? Yes. Both. You encounter this problem when you pray. You pray for something that you want or you pray for something you expect to be the will of God. You hear about the power of God and you also hear about the power of prayer and you say, which one should I choose? The sovereignty of God or me petitioning God for something? Both. Don't release the tension. Hang on to it. It's called divine truth. So what does attention look like? What does proactive faith look like? I've mentioned before something that to me was very compelling when I first read it years ago. It was a description of faith that was given by Eugene Peterson in a book called The Contemplative Pastor. And in this book, he struggled with the issue of praying and believing God for what you had asked. And somehow it seems influencing God and yet knowing that God was sovereign and he would do what he chose. And, and he said, it, it came to me all of a sudden. All of a sudden in the basement of a rented house where he's preparing for seminary classes, the one that most of us always dread Greek. And while studying the Greek language, he encountered the middle voice. The middle voice. A way different way of thinking about our world. We don't use the middle voice. The Greek language is much deeper and nuanced. Let me give you a quick grammar lesson that he gave. And any grammar of the Greek language will give if you've studied Greek. It basically goes like this. The first two you know pretty well, the active voice and the passive voice. Here's the active voice. In the active voice, I initiate something that goes somewhere. For instance, I counsel my friend. I initiate something that goes somewhere. In the passive voice, I receive the action that's initiated by another. Passively. What's this look like? I'm counseled by my friend. My friend initiates the activity of giving me advice and counsel, and I passively listen. But the middle voice, ah, right between the two and both of each, it's so different, it's so rich. The middle voice is this. I actively participate in the action 
that is initiated by another. Do you see the difference? Not passively receiving, not initiating the action myself, but participating, taking responsibility, being energetic. Can I say bring being proactive in the activity that's initiated in my life by God? The phrase, just to continue the statements, is, is this. I take counsel. I take counsel. Someone initiates advice and counsel for me and I step into it and thus I'm changed. I think maybe in a descriptive way, that's proactive faith. But let's put aside that and get back to the narrative, shall we? What's it look like here? Let's make it practical. I think what proactive faith looks like here is that it begins with a very basic instinct. There's nothing super spiritual about wanting to save your baby. Come on now, wouldn't every one of you do that? It's just a very native disposition. So proactive faith just starts with the basics, doing what you know to be right, initiating the activity that you know to serve the interest of others. So proactive faith, at least at the bottom line, is just that, doing the right thing. You know, it it reminds me of this. (laughs) Doing the right thing is not necessarily exciting. As a matter of fact, acts of faith are rarely huge and gigantic and life-changing. Most of them are just decision points concerning what you ought to do. Faith is not a gigantic, groundbreaking vision. It's just a simple, dutiful following God. Pharaoh wants to kill my baby. I think God wants me to preserve him. That's proactive faith. What's it look like for you? Another part of proactive faith, I think, is this. It's the kind of faith that's born out of desperation. Well, you see that in the story. You see that in the story, but tell me this. Don't you identify with that in the story? Isn't that when you're the most ready for faith? Isn't it when you're at the bottom of the barrel, when you're hanging on to the last knot in the rope, that at that point you cry out to God and you say, God, please, I believe you, please come through. You exercise faith. Some people, they have a negative view of crisis experiences of conversion. Most conversions are born of crisis. Because at the bottom of it all, we finally get to the place that we realize we can't but God can. Proactive faith is is often, if not always, born out of desperation. This proactive faith that I see in the story, it's also aware of its environment. (laughs) Did you notice that? Miriam and Jochebed, they didn't come up with some elaborate plan that had nothing to do with the tools that were at hand. 
They weren't trying to overthrow Pharaoh. They couldn't. They weren't conceiving of some ridiculous plan. They looked at their environment and they worked with what was at hand. They basically followed God step by step in their own environment by faith. Can I just throw in another critical barb? Sorry, you know I'm good for these. Do we really need another Christian nonprofit organization that's promoted and run by a celebrity or a big-time pastor? I don't think so. You know what I think we need? You and me as individuals in an army, proactive with our faith. The final thing I want to say about this proactive faith, well, next to final. (laughs) This proactive faith, it waits patiently. I don't know how long Miriam stayed in the bulrushes. I want to think for quite a while. Maybe not. I don't know how long Miriam and Jochebed planned and prayed over this plan, but they did. I do know that the picture that you get is not what you might call proactive and resourceful in doing something, is it? It's placing of a basket and waiting. Waiting to see what God's going to do and being there when it happens. I I loved uh, what Ben sang this morning. By the way, Ben, you know, substituted for the choir, and only certain people can sound as big as the choir with one voice. I think he did it. (laughs) What was the phrase? It It was from John the Baptist. Prepare the way of the Lord. Proactive faith waits patiently, and the patient waiting is the preparation for the way of the Lord. I, you know, I love sports. One sport I've always loved, but I'm loving more every day, is baseball. It's a thing of beauty. I'm sorry, John thinks it's boring, but he's wrong. He's just not perceptive enough to see the beauty of the game. On Thursdays, uh, we have a ministry staff meeting in which we strategize and think and laugh and pray and share. And this Thursday, Josiah came up with this cockamamie idea that we shouldn't do all that spiritual stuff. We should just go over to the IU Bart Kaufman field and watch the players do a practice round before they played in the regional. So we did that and you guys paid for it. I'm sorry, but we don't do that every Thursday. It, it was a really good activity and it, it, see, it turned into a sermon illustration. All right. You know what we witnessed there? Boring routine. We saw guys running from one place to another, throwing out phantom runners, shagging flies in the outfield that didn't amount to anything. We saw routine. And they do it day after day after day. 
patiently waiting for the game. I think the reason I love baseball is because more than any other sport, at least to me, you got to let the game come to you. If you're standing at the batter's box, you've got absolutely no control over the pitch. You can do your best to eye it. You can try to predict its speed. You can try to decide whether it's going to be a curveball or a slider or a slurve or a fastball. And then, in a second, you make a decision. You're proactive, but you let the ball come to you. And you know what the best hitters do? They don't fight the ball. They work with it. When it's in a certain position, they use the position. When it's at a certain speed, they use the speed. And sometimes the ball soars in almost an eternal way over the fence. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? I mean, it, I got to go to a game because Tom Kurtz, my friend, called me and said he had an extra ticket on Friday night. And I told Brenda, I don't want to disappoint Tom. I got to go to this game. Yeah. She understood. And uh, we went out to dinner and then I went to the game. And it was, of course, a wonderful game. IU wins 10 to 2 and they let the game come to them. And the ball flew out of the park and bounced in the right hole. And they won. Sounds like proactive, patient faith. Some of you may know the books that have been written recently by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, Outliers is one of them. Blink is another. Tipping Point, the list goes on, a remarkable author. One of the things he says in Outliers um, repeatedly and has become one of his mantras and he's known for is 10,000 hours rule. The rule of 10,000 hours. What's it mean? It means that you've got to commit at least 10,000 hours to any particular activity in order to finally get to the point of being an expert. Over and over and over again. Patiently waiting. So here's something practical. Do you get bored reading the Bible? Good. Keep reading. Wait patiently. Do you slug through it and say, what is in this for me? Good. Keep looking. Wait patiently. And after you do, day after day and month after month and sometimes year after year, an encounter where you have your eyes wide open will reveal an unbelievable eternal truth in the Word of God that has been lodged in your memory and in your heart. Wait patiently. Don't look for a quick fix. Dig in and wait patiently. 
Last thing to say is this. Proactive faith is diligent faith. It trusts God completely. And it refuses to stop believing. And it watches for opportunities to enter God's story. That's proactive faith. I hope it's yours. It can be. It takes practice. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that uh, you give us example after example of how to follow you. Some of those examples, Lord, are examples of people who just really messed it up. Sometimes this sin was willful sin. Other times it was just stupidity. And in any event, it didn't seem like it could be faith. But you tell us those stories of those people who persevere in their faith in spite of their own inadequacies and in spite of messing it up. And and it seems like sometimes because they mess it up, you get the glory. So Lord, help us to find ourselves in that story. Help us to accept the fact that we are those people and those people are us and there is eternal wisdom in the stories of Scripture. And Lord, give us the faith to continue to not stop believing, to believe that no matter what the activity around us, you are active in the process of writing your story. And then give us the faith as we wait patiently and think strategically to enter your story and to find our life there. And we'll thank you in the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen.